0: All right, I have one more announcement before I go into the episode. I know these can be super annoying, but this is not a paid advertisement. This is actually about one of my projects. I made a feature film called Fractals, and guess what? It is now available for streaming. Just visit my website, ericnorcross.com. Look for the movie Fractals, and there will be a list of platforms where you can stream it. Thanks. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. My podcast episode today is with author David Hollander. David is the author of L.I.E. from 2000 and the 2020 novel Anthropica. He is also a professor of creative writing uh, at Sarah Lawrence College. Uh, and, uh, that was where I did my MFA in creative writing. And so I had David as a mentor a couple of times during my time there. And this is my first time catching up with him since I graduated in 2017. And so, or was it 2017, 2019? Sorry. Yeah. I'm getting my years mixed up. Uh, this is my first time, uh, catching up with David Uh, since I graduated in 2019 and so uh, it was a great conversation. It runs about an hour and a half and I'll see you on the other side. How's it going Fexo? How you doing Eric? What's going on? Uh, Not much. I'm uh, just Doing these podcasts, that's basically been it for the last few months.
1: Well, listen, Fexo is uh, sorry that he couldn't make it. So he sent me with uh, you know strict instructions as to how to represent him and his master of work.
0: I was going to say that you have to be one of the most generous American creators just by the fact that you haven't sued his ass yet.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think... Uh, at first, when I thought that it was all just a joke and that there was no Fexo and he was just some sort of bot, you know, created to, I don't know, by one of the many enemies I've made over the years, uh, then I, you know, thought maybe there was something I could do to, something litigious I might pursue. But as time has gone on and I've come to accept that Fexo is very real, uh, now I just live in fear for, for <laughs> myself and my family.
0: Has he made threats
1: uh, only on on his uh twitter account where, where mm. even, but even then the threats are very vague it's nothing that you could you know bring bring to a bring to a court of law or anything like that yeah, has he threatened it, has he threatened you
0: um he gets pissy with me sometimes but that's okay you know it's yeah. twitter that's what it's for
1: <laughs> yeah twitter what is twitter for
0: I haven't figured um, that out yet because I thought I would use it to promote things and nobody listens.
1: <laughs> oh, I know. It's really hard to – I can't figure out why some people will, like, put something on Twitter and there will be, like, an enormous response to it, you know, like like hundreds of replies. And I don't know what they're doing right, but, uh, like, I don't really understand how, how it works, like, why some people seem to be worth following.
0: Yeah, I – um. I've I've come across so many independent authors who are kind of doing it the way I do it where I just kind of do on demand and for some reason though they've racked up 20,000 followers and I've ordered some of these books like I am a supporter of indie publishing and like the most of the time the formatting is off there's been no editing that's been done whatsoever but I do it anyway, and I don't understand what what is the difference. Like, because I pay I pay to have my work edited. Um, I a professional graphic designer, so I'm doing professional level page layout, and I just don't get it. Like, what is the yeah. difference?
1: No, I know it, and it is so frustrating when you see, um, you know, the all these indie authors on on, uh, on Twitter. Sort of, you know, pushing their books, and then if you get a copy, it's true. It's just like a mess, you know. It's it's kind of what I assumed uh, self publishing was like. And then you have uh, some people like you, who are actually, you know, putting out really beautiful artifacts and and doing what it takes to make something that looks professional. But you can't tell the difference between these two things based on like the advertising and what you're coming across. So you don't know what you're going to get when you when you order those books. Um, so yeah, it's it's frustrating because I'm I'm like you, you know. I try to buy things here and there and just support people, uh, and very often I'm I'm disappointed that this is how they've decided to represent themselves.
0: Yeah, uh, you look you... good.
1: You look good, man. You look you look healthy, and uh, I don't know. I like your setup there. So you...
0: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, I put books back there specifically for you. Uh, I got Rick Moody. So, is he's the blue spine? But mostly it's Celine and Bokowski.
1: Uh, yeah, nice. And, and, uh, I, 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 had, had I had you up bookshelf back there.
0: I had you up there, but I pulled them down for your podcast so we could promote your stuff. But uh, what do you think of uh, just before we leave the Twitter discussion, what do you think of the when they do the writers
1: lifts? Well same thing there where I can't quite figure out what it's for. Because you could you could suddenly like find that you get a couple dozen more um, followers by joining in one of these writers lifts, but it's not like any of those people really like care in any way to like support you or invest in you. So it's like an, I guess there's like a little bit of like the, the dopamine social media burst you get from having your followers go up, but it doesn't seem to have any practical effect, you know? So if, it feels honestly like a big waste of time, but I would imagine if you can cross some threshold, then that might change. But I don't know where that threshold is. Is it like 5,000 followers, 20,000? Like, I don't know when you start to feel like you have a useful platform uh, on Twitter. Yeah, It seems like it must be a lot, you know, like I think you really need to have a lot of people uh, before, before you start to see any real world effects.
0: Okay, yeah, I feel the same way. Um, Okay. Uh, So I've been thinking a lot about you and David Ryan and all the other people up there because, you know, in my undergrad, it was mostly distance and independent study. So probably things haven't changed at that particular college. But Sarah Lawrence, what's what's your life like right now?
1: Oh, my God. I'm just, like, on Zoom so much, you know? Like, it's crazy because, uh, you know, as you know we do conferences with all these students, right? And and my students are all around the world right now. You know, like my undergraduate class, I've got kids in China and Pakistan and uh, Eastern Europe. So um, my schedule is crazy. I have conferences at weird times because of people being spread out. And probably there are days where I'm on Zoom, either teaching or doing one-on-one conferences for like eight or nine hours. And um, I'm finding that eight or nine hours on Zoom is much more exhausting than eight hours in person uh so now we're at the end of the semester and I just feel like uh really drained and I know the students do too I have like a an inordinate number of uh undergraduates who are like having mental breakdowns you know like they just can't take it anymore (laughs) so it's um you know the college the colleges I think we're doing a really good job better than most colleges with like both keeping people safe and managing to continue to have like a a good pedagogical model. Like I think people are still learning a lot, but it's a it's a hard time I think to be in academia.
0: When was I mean the it's last... a hard time.
1: It's a hard time to be in anything, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. When was the last time you were on campus?
1: Yesterday. Oh, okay. Because because I actually have been going to campus to teach my Zoom classes from my office at the college, uh, because my wife is also a teacher. She's upstairs right now, uh, and we can't really both be here teaching at the same time place isn't big enough so uh mostly i've been going to to campus to teach from there it's a ghost town
0: you have some nice exposed brick back there
1: oh yeah yeah i like that brick too there's also let me see i'm um, show it. show you have a christmas tree okay. uh, and then over there is my guitar somewhere yeah there it is uh so this is kind of like um not exactly my office, but most of my stuff seems to end up in this room.
0: In the Christmas tree room.
1: Yeah. <laughs> the Christmas tree room.
0: <laughs> yeah, we have we have two ornaments. We have this like diamond snowflake ornament, which we hung on a nail. And then I have a Star Trek ornament, which is still in the box. That's it. Almost, That's our Christmas I, decor. I, I wore this
1: NASA shirt, but I had on earlier a Star Trek shirt. I should have kept that on.
0: Did you see the announcement that the Space Force are going to be called the Guardians? No way. Is yeah, that true? Yeah, P- Pence tweeted uh, that the Space Force people who are involved uh, are now the Guardians. That is
1: totally incredible. I, I love it. Um, it's, it's my favorite thing the administration has done. <laughs> the, the Space Force, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. So in, instead of being called an astronaut, will you be called a guardian? Mm-hmm. If you, yeah, that is—that's just amazing. Because yeah. they're
0: not explorers or doing uh, science for the sake of science; they're there to fight wars with aliens.
1: Yes, right. The space force. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we are moving. I mean, I'm thinking back to when uh, you know Reagan had his like Star Wars defense plan, and how that was doing the same thing, sort of trying to draw on these popular connotations with star Wars, you know, and like now we're in like this era of super high tech where we can wage war out in space, you know? So it's a similar idea, right? It's like just drawing on these um, sort of pop culture uh, references to, yeah, let's go get those aliens. so weird. Yeah. Um, So did you ever, Eric, do you know, do you know the theory of, um, of the great filter? Have you ever heard this?
0: Oh, uh, that's in regards to like why civilizations can't migrate to space. Yeah, 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 that, yeah. That's, I love that's that my stuff.
1: favorite thing these days. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but... And there's like theories on what what is the filter that's going to keep us from leaving our solar system. I personally think that it's the um, the Oort cloud. I think that that you know you know what the Oort cloud is. Uh, it's just basically like we're we're kind of in the sun's bubble, uh, the, the uh, magnetic, its own magnetosphere. And beyond that is the Oort cloud, which I think is kind of a barrier. I, I think that's going to be tough for us to get through.
1: Oh, interesting. Interesting. I, I think it's just that um, it's hard to imagine our civilization or any civilization getting to the point where the technology that could... Um, carry us to distant worlds could develop because we will destroy ourselves long before that can happen so it would just be like our own you know worst tendencies that that will you know and i think that's that's the part of that theory that i really like is that the reason there are no aliens is that no one can get to that point of, of technology because eventually yeah. every society destroys itself as it gets too advanced
0: yeah that's um that's very likely and i could totally see humans falling into that um I remember like watching the um, one of the Avengers movies. I think it was Infinity War, and Tony Stark goes to another planet for the first time. In all these movies, he'd never been to outer space, and um, he comes across uh, one of the Guardians of the Galaxies, and he says, "Tony says, who are you with?" And the guy says, "What do you want me to say, Jesus?" And imme- immediately he's like, oh, you're from Earth. And, and that made me realize, oh, yeah, we're not going past our solar system. Because like, it just hit me. I'm like, this is cool, but I, I don't know. Immediately my mind went to all the people who are willing to wage war for nonsensical reasons. Or even people like um, some of my own family members who think that it's against, it's against God's will for us to even be out in space anyway. Uh, It's going to be a tough fight to get beyond our own solar system.
1: That's really interesting. Why, why would it be against God's will for us to be in outer space? I
0: don't. I don't know the logic. Um, I separated from uh, the religion. uh, You know, I came up with a mom who was. She kind of did a lot of religion hopping. Uh, different Christian sects, and um, it it got more conservative and more conservative and more conservative. And by the time I was twenty one, I just stopped. I'm like, I gravitated towards studying the scientific method and reading uh, books, um, kind of about astronomy and things like that. And so, I don't get the the logic behind it. I think there's this this idea where, um, you know, it's God's Earth, and He put us He put us there here uh and we should stay and I, I don't get i don't get it at
1: yeah all. sure no i all right okay but, uh
0: do you do you I know did... how how much we have obtained simply from just all the technology that was developed during the space race basically made the 21st century possible i mean it's, yeah. it's remarkable
1: yeah i i uh i wonder if something similar um like, I always feel like if the country had something like that to rally around, you might see a similar, like, explosion of innovation. But since the country is, like, such a divided mess now, it's impossible to imagine anyone rallying around anything, uh, just universally. But it does seem like that's, uh, you know, just how, how you get these, like, major leaps forward instead of the, the regular crawl. But, um, but yeah, the space race, those were the good old days <laughs> yeah. I, and, and, you know, I think
0: the, the the hope I have is rooted in the privatization of space flight on the American side, because everything Musk has been doing in that regard has been amazing. Seeing rockets land upright was
1: yep. blew my mind. I'm like, holy shit, is that real? <laughs> yeah. No, well, what is his doesn't he want to put people on more on uh, on the moon? So, he like, wants to put that... people
0: on the moon in a couple of years. Yeah. So we're we're well on the our way to that. Um China's just came back yeah. from the moon. Um mm-hmm. and then in like 10 20 years something like that we're supposed to be on Mars. I don't know what the timeline is for Mars, but it'll probably be delayed.
1: <laughs> yes, I'm sure. I'm sure. That was when when I was a kid, that's what I used to uh, tell people my life goal was was to was to get to Mars <laughs> before I died, and but stay. It's, it does, I don't I don't think I'm going to I don't think I'm going to make it, but um <laughs> But, but still, I w- did you ever read uh,
0: The Martian, the Andy Weir book? I saw the movie. I didn't read the book. Yeah, I have yeah. a hard time with, like, um, a, it's kind of a digital epistolary novel. Uh, what, you know, yeah, yeah. I have it's, a hard time uh, with that format.
1: I, it, actually, although I know this kind of sacrilege, I, I didn't think the novel was great. But um, <laughs> but one thing I did like about it is that he, he has this, like, vision So a lot of science fiction that, for instance, my 14 year old reads, is like really dystopic, right? Like the future is going to be terrible. Uh, We're destroying everything. It's inevitable that that we will cause our our own extinction. It's so on and so forth. But Andy Weir's vision is more like, uh, hey, man, space is really cool. We're going to go to Mars. It's going to be awesome. You know, like (laughs) so that optimism I I really like.
0: Um, Yeah, I'm I'm a fan of the Gene Roddenberry version of the future.
1: Yeah, the uh, utopia. Where, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, it's a it's a, it's a little commie, but that's
1: okay. Um. <laughs> yeah, well, that was that was an issue I had. I watched a a, a little bit of the Picard series, um, but I, I didn't see the I I didn't see the whole thing. Um, but I watched like maybe four episodes or something, and I was sort of bummed out that it does away with like the utopian vision of the future because it's uh you know got just a, a lot of dystopic elements and uh just feeling of like treachery everywhere in, in yeah. a way that was like too dark for star trek
0: yeah it's gotten i think that started with the jj J. abrams versions where yeah. it just became about the action and the betrayal and it's just yeah. like like i thought it was cool that um the rom- Romulus got wiped out by the sun going supernova. I thought that was an interesting detail. But, yeah, it, it's, it's just gotten way too bureaucratic in a dark way.
1: Yeah. yeah, It's like, like everything, you know? <laughs> That's like the direction. Like like that it,
0: To me, Star Trek isn't supposed to reflect who we are, but what we can be. And now it's yes. reflecting who we are.
1: Yeah. Agreed. 100%. Glad we settled that.
0: Yeah. Uh, we tend... One thing I remember about us meeting all the time in when I was in the MFA program was we always agreed. We always got along. And that wasn't like that with anybody else. Everybody else I was like in heated arguments with.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's probably because you were a bit of an outlier in the MFA program. You had like... Um... You already had, like, really strongly, you know, just because you've you've been a filmmaker and been involved in the arts for a long time, you already had, like, really strong feelings about, you know, what art was for and, and why you were doing it in a way that was, like, honestly, well, it was not a thought that most of your peers are going to arrive at for like another five years. Yeah. <laughs> so, so in that way, you were like ahead, you know, just way ahead and, and eventually everyone is, or not everyone, but many people are going to come to the same views you have, but they're not there yet, you know, because it takes experience and having, you know, tried to live as an artist for a while to, to talk the way you talk.
0: Yeah. Uh, and honestly, like as, as much as I try to, I mean, that's part of what this podcast is for. Like, yeah, we talk about other things, but the root of everything is communicating that this idea of um, the art life, what is it really for? Um, Are you really after a career? Um, And I liked what uh, Brian Morton, he still runs the program, I I take it? Um,
1: Yeah, now he runs the undergraduate program. And uh, do you remember uh, Paige? Yeah. Tiley, she now is the MFA director.
0: Oh, well, she got promoted. Good for she her. did.
1: Yeah. Um, she's she's great too, you know. We're, we're super lucky because Brian was amazing. But uh, but Paige is great too, so it would have been easy for it to feel like a downgrade, but it has not. So
0: Yeah, I think it helps though that they were already kind of a team who understood how to work the the program. Yes. Uh, but I, I liked Brian's description when I was there that it's really I think the confusion with the MFA, because the, I see so much shit about the creative writing MFA uh, in general, not, not just art specifically, but all over the country, um, is this misunderstanding that it's a vocation for getting work rather than uh, just a way to um, come into some sort of regular practice. And I think that's misunderstanding Uh, accounts for a lot of why why I ended up in heated disagreements with a lot of students.
1: No, absolutely. That has changed a lot since I went through the MFA program, which was in like the mid to late 90s. Um, Like when I was in the program, very few people were trying to publish anything. You know, like, I think we all just understood it as like two years to develop our work to form a community. And uh, I know I certainly didn't try to publish anything while I was there. Now, a lot of the students are obsessed with publishing. Like, like the minute they write something, it seems like they're, they're trying to find someone who will publish it. And of course, publishing has gotten easier. There's like 10 million uh, small literary magazines online. And, and, uh, but I don't, I don't know what the... Uh, it's the same thing as like getting the um, 5,000 followers on Twitter. Like it's the little dopamine burst of feeling like, oh, look, something is happening for me. But it's not actually doing anything to further the, you know, deeper or more enriching uh, feeling that comes from making art, which is about, like, process and being stepping outside the regular stream of time to, like, uh, commune with first things, right? All these sort of big impulses behind uh, wanting to make art, they're not really there. It's it's much smaller than that, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, what do you think the healthiest move some of these – these cats on Twitter could make um, just did could like just a technical pull the trigger on this and maybe it'll shift them in the right direction. That's
1: a hard one. I isn't. don't know. I, I, I think it's like a, I just think, I think it's a hopeless medium for like, I just, <laughs> I, I don't think anything good is going to happen there. Uh, but I also feel like a dinosaur with this stuff. Like, like the way I think about these things, because I'm aware That when I spend time on social media, like for like Anthropica, you've seen, like I post all the time just trying to like sell a few copies here and there. Um, It is really bad for me. Like I can feel how it is like messing with my brain chemistry. Uh, And I know that the days I feel really good are the days I never sit in front of this screen, you know, Um, and that is not the way any... Uh, writer who's being successful right now is thinking or behaving. It's it's yeah. all about building a platform, trying to get to those 20,000 or 50,000 followers, you know, if, uh, but I'm just thinking like, man, what a miserable way to live. Because I know like I, even the amount I'm doing, which pales in comparison to people who are really self-promoting, uh, you know, it's really bad for me. It makes me very unhappy.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, this is perfect timing uh, the way kind of these episodes are being scheduled because on Tuesday I'm actually interviewing or i they're not interviewing. I'm having a discussion with, I have to get my language right. Um, <laughs> especially with you, uh, a social media expert who worked in like a, a PR environment. And so we're going to talk about all this stuff too, but from his perspective. And, and so I think that, with these kind of back to back, it'll be interesting. Listen to this, and then listen to this. You know, here's the problem. Here's the guy with solutions, uh, and then I don't know. Maybe it'll be. You useful know, I, I find
1: that really curious too, because I know there are people who definitely don't feel it's bad for them. You know, uh, and I, that's the way I think. it what that's why I feel like a dinosaur is I feel like my brain was set up before this was the primary like idiom in which we all moved right and my brain is still wants it to feel the old way and and uh this still feels like uh fitting a you know square peg round hole or whatever
0: i feel like all of us born before 1990 have analog brains and everybody after 1990 has digital brains
1: that's probably about right yeah and uh and so you know now all my students of course my undergrads they were a lot of them were born after 9-11 which is crazy that's
0: so weird right that seems it still feels like we're still in that era
1: it really does it's like uh, every time uh, i
0: hear the department of homeland security in the news i'm like that's that old already it's over 20 years old at this point almost and it's patriot Act. yeah the patriot act that's still happening um can we talk about your writing for a little bit yeah let's do I want to promote your book I want people to buy your shit so
1: yeah yeah, me too what year did this come out Um, L.I.E. that copy that you have in your hand came out Uh, in 2001 the first edition the hardcover came out in
0: 2000 okay Anthropica comes out in 2020 (laughs)
1: what
0: went on what went on in between as far as your your writing practice goes
1: oh oh my god (laughs) Um. Well, that's a long time. <laughs> For everybody on YouTube,
0: this is Anthropica.
1: Um. Yeah, I... Uh, okay, I'll try to give you the short version of what this 20-year orc was like. It's not that I did not write books in between these two books. I didn't, you know, wait 20 years and think, oh, now I'll write another novel. Uh, I probably wrote like five books in between, uh, none of which... Uh, obviously were published, but uh, I tried to publish all of them. Well, almost all of them. I tried to publish four other books in total. Um, And I think what happened after LIE was now that my work was published and I had a very high opinion of myself and thought like, Oh, look at me. I'm a a young writer uh, of renown and the next big thing and so on and so forth. So I was very aware now that I had this audience Um, and I think I was out to prove to this audience, I imagined for myself, that I was the greatest writer who ever lived. And so writing really became less and less fun for me the further I gravitated away from LIE, because I was really concerned with producing something that would, uh, you know, sort of put put my face on the Mount Rushmore of literature. Uh, Trying to do that is puts a ton of pressure on you when you sit down to write. And so the pressure was increasing. The work was getting denser and more difficult. Uh, no one wanted it, which then would lead me to return to the blank page even more determined to write something even, even better than that thing that I thought was the greatest thing anyone had ever written. And I was just in this cycle for a long time. Uh, and Anthropica is the book that came about after I had completely given up. You know, like I had a book before that that I was calling Follow Down the Light, which was this dark kind of Cormac McCarthy thing that uh revolved around a man who was abducting and eating children. Uh, so yeah. So it was just like a horrific book, you know, and and that was like for me the the peak of no fun. Like really like a just a, I don't know, really hard book to work on, but one that I thought was like deep and and that I, you know, I'm an artist. I have to deal with all these difficult issues and so on. So Anthropica was written after I had quit writing. I was like, uh, okay, this is just not happening for me. And I started writing it um, probably like seven years ago as what I was calling a G-chat novel. Do, Do you remember like on Gmail, how you used to be able to change your status and oh, you could, yeah. like, it was, it was almost like Twitter. Like, you could put a status in there that was, like, 200 characters long.
0: I forgot all And about I started, yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, they don't do that anymore. But I would um, work on these little set pieces that involve a lot of the characters from Anthropica. And I would just put, like, 200 characters at a time into my chat box. And, you know, those people who I corresponded with most often, uh, they would get to see these little snippets of things I was writing. And I was telling myself that that's all it would be. And that uh, you know, I had this really funny idea. I was like, it's like I'm writing this novel, but it's behind a brick wall and all you can see of it is what you can see through the cracks in the wall. But um, I think this was like a story I was telling myself because I was so emotionally destroyed by having written for 15 years or something at that point without anyone wanting any of my books that I couldn't put myself emotionally at, at risk again. Um, So I pretended for probably two years that I wasn't really writing a book, right? I was just putting these little things into my Gchat status. But then I turned around, I had like 200, 300 pages of this thing. And I was like, okay, well, damn it, I'm writing a book again. But because I was not writing this one from the beginning with that feeling of, I'm the greatest writer ever, let me prove it to you. The fun that I used to have, like when I was writing LIE, was finally with me again. And so the process became, even after I accepted that I was writing a book, really connected to, uh, well, both to fun, but also to like who I actually am as a, as a person, as a writer, as a thinker. Uh, and so, you know, it ended up being the book that was a return to the initial impulses for making art for me. And it should be like a really happy story Where it's like, oh yes, and then I did that, and finally I was rediscovered. But the fact is, no one wanted Anthropica either, (laughs) so so I went through that whole thing, and then Anthropica was rejected by every uh, every major publisher on Earth. But you, you know the thing about Anthropica,
0: though, I feel like, and this is this is not hope as much as it is a prediction. This is my prediction. We'll see how good I am at this. I think that. I don't know what the sales are like, um, but I think it'll be discovered more and more as time goes on because it, it is legitimately a stellar piece of writing. I don't read a lot of fiction nowadays. I'm reading a lot of nonfiction and journalism. Uh, but, I mean, when I was reading it, every every paragraph I could tell you were having a good time. I felt like, wow, this this... Brings me back to some of some of your lectures, where you, you you clearly loved playing with sentences. You wanted us to love playing with sentences. Um, even the names—if you just go down straight to the names—like you're really good at names. Like uh, Laszlo Katastropa, <laughs> Grace Kitchen sounds like um, somebody who is a writer who might teach off and on.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's really and, funny,
0: and uh, I could just—I could see you smiling, writing these, inventing these. I could see you smiling behind Fex, the veil of Fexo on Twitter, and—and and I think that's something that other creators, regardless of their medium, really should latch onto. This isn't about proving that you're the best at this because most people aren't. You're never going to be the best because it just is what it is. Uh, but if you could just enjoy yourself, I think that you'll find you'll love the work more. And, that, and that's the case with me And that short story that you mentored me through Fritz. like uh, I had yeah. a great, great, story, time, yeah. great time yeah. writing that and editing that. And um, I can't say that about most of the stuff I've created, to be honest with you. But it has more meaning because of how I felt creating it.
1: Yeah, no, that, that's... Uh... So I know when I was working on Anthropica, my rule for myself, was that I was not going to write anything that wasn't fun. Uh, And one of the reasons that the book has its kind of, um, you know, fragmented or jump-cutty structure, right, where, like, you read a chapter and then you move to a completely different character in a different space, different time, right, Uh, was simply that I didn't want to write any of, like, the connective tissue, where it's like, okay, and now we'll have a chapter where you know we watch him uh go to the grocery store to get the thing that he's gonna need to build the bomb right <laughs> like i didn't i didn't want to do any of that and so i would just write the parts that were really fun and assemble them jigsaw-like and play around with the best arrangements and um and so that really was the rule and so the whole book all 500 pages of it was written in a state of just like joy um and and it's it's true. So even if it, like all the other books, had not been published, uh, I still would have had all those hours of joy, which, you know, what more can we hope for than that?
0: Yeah, you probably increased your lifespan by a few years. <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> <seven or more.
1: laughs> yeah. Whereas like that child eater book, uh, <laughs> there was no joy in that. Uh, you know, I, it felt like I was punishing myself, you know, while, while writing it.
0: I feel like a concept like that would be a good time trying to make it into a movie that's watchable. Because the the inventiveness that would have to be required and just like how silly the set would have to be to not get depressed by what you're doing. Uh, But to write write a book would be in your head for as long as it takes to write a book. That that's almost like deliberately making one's person mentally ill. like, oh, how can I make myself crazy? Hmm.
1: Yeah, well, you know it's really funny you mentioned that because I have a friend who's a who's a screenwriter uh, and who I had um sort of synopsized this book for, and he was like, "Oh, you should send it to me because maybe I could turn it into like a screenplay. So I did that just like um, a few weeks ago. I don't know I don't know where he is with it, but that's um. That's a thing that's sitting around out there that'll never happen like all my other like all my other plans but
0: I see it as a my, Christmas my, movie
1: oh yes exactly yes. <laughs> <laughs> Christmas two thousand twenty five it'll be it'll be ready um, yeah I just
0: watched yeah. this um I don't, do you watch um Christmas horror movies I don't really but i I stumbled across one on Amazon where they un they sort of an archaeological dig uncovers the real Santa, who's this giant beast. So weird and good, uh, uh, but incredibly low budget. Um, I, I'm i thinking of that because they were taking children to eat them.
1: Oh, yes. Yeah. But that sounds incredible. I haven't watched a movie like that since uh, my kids were born. <laughs>
0: so. oh, well, the poster is what got me because it's this giant sleigh about the size of a house with this wrapped package and two horns sticking out of it two curled horns (laughs) love
1: it (laughs) yeah yeah no i know there's like aren't there like a bunch of there's a bunch of creepy santa movies out there or, or you know santa santa's elves um but no i i don't think i've really seen i don't know the genre very well
0: yeah, the, um, the 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 shtick with this was the Santas that we're familiar with are actually the elves, and they're all kind of clones of one another, and they're vicious as hell. And uh, uh, do you want to know the end? I, you probably yeah, this is amazing. Yes. Yeah. yeah no, okay. tell me. So the end uh, spoiled is earlier. This movie is called Rare Exports, and you don't know why it's called Rare Exports until the end when you realize that. They've managed to kidnap and train and enslave all of the Santa elves. to, And then they start shipping them off to malls around the world. <laughs> and they label it as a rare export. And that's the end of the movie.
1: <laughs> oh, my God. I, I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's so good.
0: It's cheesy, but it's good. Like, this is so original. And the cool thing about this movie, you can watch it on Amazon if you have Prime. It was crowdfunded. This started off as a short trailer that we did we did this trailer and then they crowdfunded it. And uh, I stumbled across it because somebody had dissected it on some YouTube channel. I'm like, this looks amazing. For those have you tried reason.
1: have you tried to fund any of your own projects that way?
0: Uh yeah, it doesn't work. Hmm. Uh, I think it it really just comes down to networking and if people genuinely want it. You know, I create stuff people don't know don't Either don't want or don't know that they. I know. I know this sounds like I'm like tooting my own horn, but I'm creating stuff. I think people need that they don't realize they need. At least that's what I'm yeah. trying to do. Like um, all the all these graphic novels, which I have yet to even finish. I have two big ones that I'm doing, and one of them is really about the art life and kind of the struggles of it. You know, uh, there's a a big scene about how to how do you deal with thanksgiving when everybody's asking about how you're making income and not about your passion and it's just like people don't want to contribute to projects like that because it, yeah. it, it's not exciting it's too intellectual uh, i found that a lot of the stuff people contribute to are really really exciting uh, in terms yeah. Of just, ooh,
1: ooh, yeah no i know what you mean sometimes i have these conversations with my undergraduates where like um we'll just be discussing some book I really love. And uh, at the end of the discussion, I'll be like, well, first of all, let me tell you guys, that was amazing. Like uh, the, the conversation we just had, uh, there's no way I could have a conversation like that with like people in my neighborhood who probably want to talk more about like mortgages and, and tax brackets, you know, like, it, like it's really hard to have these conversations that are outside academia. And that's why, uh, you know, there are days where I really feel lucky to have the job I have. You know, it's it's really more with the undergrads than with the grad students, because as you said, a lot of the grad students are already thinking about it as like a kind of vocation or thinking about it in terms of commerce. How can I create a brand? How can I get my stuff published? And uh, whereas the undergrads really are just there for the thrill of discovery. And um, in some ways I feel like I'm more like them than like the other 50 year olds populating my life. So.
0: Yeah, well, there's. Um, they haven't quite figured out how dire their get, their lives are going to be <laughs> in a few years. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, I, I think that once, once I mean, everybody in the MFA went through undergrad, so they already know what their student loans look like. And uh, a lot of these, these younger people haven't looked at any of that data. Their parents have looked at the Nelnet
1: uh, yeah.
0: account or whatever, but they haven't. And once once they do, though, they'll start shifting over.
1: Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, I remember uh, when I was an undergrad getting out of college, you know, having gotten a lot of great feedback from teachers, you know, telling me how how smart I was and so on. I thought, okay, so now I'll either be a famous writer or a famous musician. All I have to do is choose which which one. (laughs) And what's funny is when LIE came out, I was really young. And so I wasn't I I was I think uh, it was accepted for publication when I was twenty nine. So I was not that far removed from, from that, you know, that way of thinking. And it seemed for a minute like, oh, yeah, I was right. So, okay, I guess I won't be a famous musician. I'll be a famous writer. <laughs> you know, and it was only after that, in those 20 years of just, like, rejection and failure and uh, struggles with money, you know, str- struggles with everything, that, that I realized how insanely lucky I had been with LIE. You know, there was nothing special about me. I just hit the jackpot, the right... The book got into the right person's hands on the right day, and that's really what publishing is. Like Anthropica, I think is a really good book, but it didn't get into the right person's hands on the right day. Uh, I mean, eventually, Animal Riot, of course, they, they published it, and I'm really grateful. But um, you know, I still feel like, well, I don't know why. Why was like Infinite Jest able to sell hundreds of thousands of copies? you know like uh like the anthropica is maybe a book in that vein you know uh and it just seems like yeah because it was the right book at the right time in the right place and that's that's how all this stuff works
0: yeah monday's episode is with a youtuber who does micro budget indie film in georgia and the name of that episode is um uh something along the lines of there's a lottery ticket component to success that a lot of people don't realize or refuse to recognize I mean it really is you got lucky yeah. and that's yeah. Not, that doesn't say anything about the writing at all it just is what it is there's so, many, so much good writing out there you, you kind of have to be open to it and one of my favorite movies is uh, City Hall where Al Pacino plays the mayor of New York his deputy yeah. mayor is John Cusack and John Cusack does this voiceover at the beginning and at the end of the movie where he's like basically if you're going to succeed in New York or I guess you could apply it to any big city or big civilization where it's complicated. You have to be willing to be lucky. You have to be open to it. You have to recognize when you're about to be lucky so you can, you know, be lucky. Yes. And uh yeah. it's so true. It's it's and it's hard to like for people to be willing to be lucky because they want this I feel like people want it done in the way that they expect it. And nothing's the way nothing goes down the way you expect it to go down ever.
1: No, it's it's true. And I, I know like a lot of writers, some of whom uh, were my students at some point who've gone on to, to publish books. And the majority of them are, you know, really um, humble and understand that they're super fortunate to have uh, hit the publishing jackpot. But there are a few who really think that they're just like God's gift uh, and um, don't recognize that they got lucky, you know, and sometimes they're not even... Honestly, the best writers I've worked with—you know—the the best writers I've worked with usually they they struggle and, and uh, often don't get their work published. So, you know, it's uh, it I think it takes a certain kind of maturity and experience to start to recognize all all of this stuff. And uh, you know, a lot of a lot of the young writers of the world they still think everything going to be peachy, and um, and the few who have early and big success uh, are unaware that things really could have gone differently if not for a couple of lucky factors that fell into place at the right time. Because there is a lot of good writing out there, and even going back to my MFA days, some of my like MFA cohort, uh, they've never published a book. Um, I mean, I, I met my wife, Margaret, at Sarah Lawrence, and she's like one of the best writers I've ever met, uh, and she doesn't have a book out. Um, you know i mean she publishes essays and uh she you know she she's involved in, in writing she teaches writing she she works for a dictionary doing stuff on grammar and usage but she's like a really funny sort of uh, darkly funny writer and you know it, it didn't happen for her and um she's better than than all these people i see getting published
0: yeah that that happens though um i remember not, like I, I think i'm the only one. I mean, I don't want to admit to cyber stalking, but I think I'm the only one from my film school class back in 2001 who's still doing indie film or still doing film at all. Um, I mean, maybe there are a couple of people in Vancouver working on a crew, but that doesn't to me, that doesn't count. Uh, right. <laughs> but everybody there wanted to make their own indie films. and I'm the only one that's still doing it.
1: Yeah. Um, so weird. Yeah, because because uh you know, the world is definitely doing its best to destroy your impulse (laughs) to make these things, right? Like the world is just going to like weigh down on you and it does take a certain kind of personality to want to keep doing it. The fire has to be really strong. And, um, you know, I mean, honestly, most MFA graduates, if you look at them uh, five or 10 years later, they're not still trying to write.
0: Yeah, that's sort of the thesis to... That's part of the thesis to my current film project that I'm editing called Fractals. Um, and, and yeah, you mentioned fractals a lot in your book. I appreciate the fuck you fractals uh, <laughs> part. But uh, <laughs> it, it's basically like, yeah, the world is hostile to the arts. You have to find another reason to do it other than career. Career is great. If you get it, take it. But if you don't have another reason to do it, you're not going to do it. I mean, that's yeah. really... No,
1: it's, it's totally true. There's no way to sustain it. If you, if that's your impulse, if that's the reason you're doing it, you will not be able to sustain it. Um, You know, and I, I'm sure we both also know a ton of successful uh, writers and filmmakers and artists in general who are independently wealthy, you know, like, like a lot of times that helps a great deal, right? Like imagine if uh, you didn't have to uh, make money to pay rent how and you could really just do this uh so you know that that also see and that's another way in which it's like oh yeah well you also hit the jackpot like you were born into a life where you would have the time to pursue this unfettered by material need and so you know and those people also usually don't realize how just how fucking lucky they are you know It's, it's really frustrating
0: yeah i um actually i i forgot how many people i knew until uh uh, about a month ago i was just kind of thinking about who to bring on and it's like i forgot i know all these writers i know all these filmmakers because um, when you're in it it's just your it's normal and i think with people especially if they come from resources or they've had resources for long enough in their life um they also forget that it's not normal. It's not normal to live on Central Park West and not ever have to worry about how you're going to pay your Con Ed bill. Like, or the fact that it's not, it's like, I, I know this actor who literally lives on Central Park West and um, he's never been able to, he's never had a bill he hasn't been able to meet in his life. And it's just like, that's not, that's not normal. <laughs> that's not, no, normally. that's really not normal. And I, uh- yeah, there's no way to access any level of humanity when when that's all you've ever known.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's all the, it's all like the the one percenters talking only to each other and thus being completely unaware that they're <laughs> that they're you know sort of uh they're they're treading atop the the masses <laughs> will never know what their lives are like. So uh, yeah, it's. Um, I, uh, so it is. That's that's why it's so hard to keep to keep making things. You know, is that there are so many other, uh, you know, more immediate needs that are that are demanding your attention, and to to keep your own impulse to make art alive uh, takes a, a really special kind of determination that I think is rare.
0: Yeah, I um, and and that really had that's re- like right after I left the MFA program, that really became like sort of the root of all my decision making all right what do i got to do next to keep creating and uh you know like i I, like everybody else who graduated from an MFA program i started applying to jobs left and right (laughs) um and i just took the one that was the highest paying but easiest to do so i didn't have to think about it that way when i wasn't doing the job i had a lot of neurons left over to create and that's kind of just what happened that's how the only reason i was able to make this film uh that i'm working on is because i made I, I made the decision not to pursue a career really but just to pursue a life of what's the easiest most lucrative way i can i can keep keep the lights on but also have leftover financing to keep creating to have peace of mind so that you know, if I'm dedicating, you know, four days out of the week to creating something that's not going to make money, I have to have peace of mind about that. Yeah, um, no,
1: it's totally true that that's why sometimes when like um, students of mine who want to be writers decide that they'll go like get a job in publishing, thinking somehow that's going to get them closer to being a writer. I'm like, oh, no, that's the worst job for a writer. They're going to they're going to work you to death. They're going to yeah. pay you shit. And you 're not right. going to have any neurons as you said left uh, to actually work on your own writing at the end of the day'd be much better off if you could live as like a you know a bartender or something uh, just just schedule wise if what you're looking to do is is create things and um yeah that's know, a, so that's
0: uh, a lucrative job and doesn't require anything you'll probably get material from doing it. Um, I ended up running video for or directing video for um Another podcast. That's what I ended up doing. But this one was financed by a financial publishing firm, which uh, made life a lot easier. Yeah, funds. Um, <laughs> but uh, it didn't require any thought from me. Like it's all second nature. I was doing it before I had enrolled in school anyway. Um, and then, so what happens is I was able to just do the job while not thinking about the job. I was thinking about my movie, what I was gonna, how I was gonna execute my production, and. That was nice. And I, I always wondered about the people who want to be editors, who want to work in publishing, because it's it's a, a brutal environment. And unless you're in a position to change the brutality of that environment, I just don't see the point.
1: No, it's true. It seems like that. And also, all your thoughts about like the magic of fiction are going to just be completely smothered to death by that atmosphere, you know? <laughs> it just yeah. seems really, really bad news. Do you know, do you know the band... Um, they might be giants
0: oh yeah 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 i love the their music yeah yeah
1: yeah me, me too but they um when when they were uh writing songs together when they were young and just starting to get this thing together uh they both had a job at um do you remember this this is really analog um years ago there used to be like these little photo mat places where you could drop your film off uh, it was like a little hut sometimes. Yep. It would be like in a mall parking lot or something. So they worked there, and they would just, like, bring guitars, the two of them, and crunch into this little photomat booth where people were dropping off their pictures. And, you know, their job was just to, like, receive and process. You know, they didn't have to do very much. They would just write songs all day in that little photomat booth, and they wrote, like, hundreds of songs that way. And uh, I always think, like, yeah, that's a see Like, they figured out how, <laughs> how to – how to do their audit work like if you can figure that out then you then you got it made you know yeah or even people even people like with secretarial type positions who can just like have their laptop open and be working on stories while they're at work you know that that seems okay to me too so, so yeah just figuring out a way to make things uh that
0: i've never taken a job where i wouldn't be able to steal time for my employer to create like when I was in high school, I, I would work the summers cooking at a restaurant, but flipping burgers doesn't take a lot, so I always had a notepad on me, and I was writing my what would end up being my first movie my senior year of high school. Or um, when I was working retail, I always found myself in a dark corner of the retail store, whatever store it was. <laughs> I remember when I was, uh, when I was at Barnes & Noble, I wasn't reshelving books that people didn't buy. I was comparing the first and last line of a novel to kind of guesstimate what that novel was about. And I was totally, like, wasting... I love that. Yeah, Wasting the employer's money. But I was learning a lot. I was creating a lot. And I think more people need to do that. I I, I think that that's one of the keys to unlocking the problem of time.
1: Yeah, well, now, now I have to con- confess something about... um. So... So out of high school, I got this, um, I got a scholarship to go run track. I was fast in high school, uh, but that did not go well. Like I quickly dropped out of school, had a nervous breakdown, and then spent like three years just like working a lot of really bad jobs. And one of those jobs was for the IRS uh, where I worked for over a year. Um, And this is out on Long Island. Um, And my job for the IRS was um, to track down files that we had lost like, like uh, we called them this was before there was a series called the x files Th- these were called z files and I would just like scour our like enormous filing cabinets full of taxpayer records looking for these things that were just mishelled somewhere um, and so this was my job so I would go and disappear into these stacks after a while I, it was really unlikely on any given day that you'd find any of these things. Like if you did, it was like finding gold. It was like, oh yes, I found one of these. Um, but after a while, I would just like leave the building and go to my core where I had like an old beater guitar and I would just like play guitar in the parking lot. <laughs> and this is when I got good at guitar, was during this period of the IRS where I would just, <laughs> and, and um, you know and never got caught. But even if I had gotten caught, you couldn't it's really hard to get fired from a government job like there was this process like first they would have to write you up no first you get a warning then you get another warning then a write-up then a second write-up then a meeting with your superior like it would take years to get fired um so that was really an example of a job where i was just like ah oh, whatever you know like my, my lunches instead of being like 40 minutes were like two hours long i would just like go home and practice guitar and that's that's what i did yeah
0: that's really funny. That's such yeah. good imagery too. Um, yeah, you grew up. You grew up in Long Island.
1: Yeah, a place where everything everything good has been systematically removed.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's um, when I first moved to New York. My first movie here was about Long Island trying to secede from New York, uh, and. Um, just filming out there made me realize that it looks cool on a map, but it's not the greatest place to be. Uh, and right now, it's a lot of um, the some of the districts out there are being sued because of um, they've rigged the districts against minority voters, especially on the southern shore.
1: Yeah, well, it's a super uh, Long Island is really um, Trumpy. You know, like there's a, you know, all, all my relatives actually are Trump supporters, so it's really hard yeah. to like go do do anything with family. Um, and uh, it's it's a super weird place because you're so close to New York City, you know, like the the center of, of the world in many ways. But nobody goes to New York City unless you're like taking the the Long Island Railroad in to go to work and then commute back. Uh, it's like um, so separated from you know, the place it lives in the shadow of. And, um, and, and so it's, it's like an, a weird, I mean, it is an island in, in the metaphorical sense. So it's a bubble. It's, it's strange. Yeah. I
0: liken it to Staten Island because Staten Island is part of New York City, but it's really not. Um, I live in the North Shore of Staten Island and often commuted to Sarah Lawrence from here. Uh, and it's, it, it, it's, it doesn't have the values of the rest of the city and um, yeah, I don't I don't know how any of that happens because for me, like, if I had access to New York growing up, even as far away as the forks of Long Island, I'd be on that train every weekend. I'd be going to going to museums, concerts, uh, indie film screenings, I would have you know but even also, having access to the level of information New Yorkers have, you figure would change sort of the way these outlying districts think, but
1: I don't know. I don't know what happened. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's really weird. I mean, my, my friends and I, we did, uh, some of what you're describing, like we would, we would cut school sometimes and, and go into the city to, to buy records. You know, I remember just how exciting that was, but that was, uh, we were outliers, you know, um, and most people just really have no interest in uh, in, in them, though, our city folk. <laughs> and, uh, and, but, but, yeah, it's... um.
0: What it's era is that? Is that the 80s?
1: Yeah, that would have been the 80s. Um, and I knew really early on I had to get out of that place. Uh, yeah, I mean, I remember I, I remember some friends who would talk about how, you know, when they got out of high school, they just you know, wanted to have some job in the community and, and just live kind of like a simple Long Island life. But, um, you know, I always knew I wanted I wanted to make things. I wanted to be involved in things bigger than that. And uh, and so, you know, I was sort of like the, that typical, typical loner, outsider kid who, who didn't quite fit in in their own home environment.
0: So how, how did you end up getting out? What happened?
1: Well, at first, I thought that that track scholarship was going to be my way out, but that, that didn't work out for me. Um, and then once I sort of retreated back to Long Island and had, had a really hard time with things for a couple of years, was working at the IRS, also worked with like a, a swimming pool company, and I was putting roofs on houses and was becoming more aware every month that I did not belong here and that it was going to kill me. Um, and eventually I realized that the only way out for me was school Uh, and so college became you know like it it wasn't really till I got to college the second time when I was maybe 21 22 or something when I finally got to college that for the first time I had people sort of corroborating that like I was intelligent (laughs) and um, you know it was the first time that I didn't feel like a total loser Uh, and that so just escaping that environment to enter a more like, to enter a place where education was honored because it was not in my family. That's for sure. Um, that sort of changed my whole orientation, and it was the first time I was like, "Oh right, this is where I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be among people like this." Um, and after that, I just never never looked back. Uh, you know, now I, I'm out there maybe once or twice a year to to see family but otherwise try to avoid it
0: yeah i feel the same i feel like i was c- kind of a uh, a black sheep in terms of how early how early i recognized that i had to get out as soon as it was possible like i think i was in middle school <laughs> like i i think it just happens you know when you don't belong and
1: yeah that was that was like my friend rick who um you now I always say like so i have I have two brothers, an older brother and a younger brother, but my real brother is uh is my friend Rick uh and he he and I grew up like right around the corner from each other, and he knew so early on that he had to get the hell out of there and he was more of like a, a punk rocker, you know he had like a very early on like a ninth grade or he already had like a mohawk and uh ended up being in this really successful uh East Village rock band called the Toilet boys um. But I remember Rick and I just like coaching each other on like, we just got to survive a few more years. (laughs) You know, just have to, you know, have to figure out how to use our enemies to our advantage until we can get the hell out of here. And I think having him was, uh, I mean, I I often feel like I would not have survived my adolescence if not for Rick.
0: Do you still run?
1: Uh, Yes, but sort of. um, in an old manish kind of way now, you know, after um, when I got to college, I discovered the sport of ultimate, which, of course, Finn in my in my book plays ultimate frisbee um, and having been a really fast track runner made me uh, pretty good at that sport pretty quickly. And then that became more my uh, sort of athletic outlet. And I played that sport really seriously for a lot of years. Like, Eric, are you aware that I am a a former national and world champion in the sport of Ultimate Frisbee? No. We know now.
0: The world knows now. Or the world will know when this goes live.
1: (laughs) Yes. So so I played that sport really seriously for a lot of years and, and didn't really... Even in 2017, I went and played at national championships for... Grandmasters, which is forty and over, um, so I still sort of play that here and there, and you know I try to run to keep in shape, but I don't compete anymore.
0: Okay, <laughs> I think I, I don't know where to take that now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I have a. It's funny, I. I have, like, so many different weird compartments in my life, you know. Yeah. Don't, like, the people I know from Ultimate uh, have, for instance, uh, for the most part, no idea that I play music. And the people I play music with really have no idea that I'm a university teacher. And the people huh. I teach with have no idea, right? And, like, my whole life is like that. It's like these separate little salvos, and they don't uh, communicate how much, with each other.
0: How much time are you so, like, how much time, well, I mean, pandemic- Aside, how much time would you typically dedicate to each? So like, how, when, are you, when are you playing this? Or when are you doing your music? When are you?
1: Yeah, it seemed like what happened for, for like, uh, before the pandemic, for about two or three years, maybe. Maybe that's not the right amount of time. Anyway, for a little while, I was playing music a little more seriously, like with a couple of bands, with like gigs almost every weekend. And while I was doing that, honestly, I wasn't writing much. Uh, It had sort of taken up that, that time. Um, And now that that's not going on, it's, it's easier to write. But of course, now there are all the pandemic issues, you know, you know, child issues and work issues. So really still not writing very much, but when, when things were going well, my good thing about, so my writing practice is such that I could have like 10 minutes Uh, between, you know, when I brush my teeth and I have to take the kids to school and I could write something. Uh, So writing, I can kind of fit into any space. I don't need to like sit down and spend a couple of hours, like getting into the zone or anything like that. So writing can kind of be a constant in these little drips and drabs. Um, So that's kind of how I think I fit a lot of things in is not in like big stretches of time, but, you know, even now I probably pick up the guitar every day. But it's not like I'm sitting down and practicing for two hours. Um, so I try to pick pick most things up, so to speak, every yeah. day.
0: Yeah, yeah. I don't think I've touched my guitar in over two months. Mm. Um, I I I wanted to get your opinion on something for a while now. Um, Sky, I used I used to do the podcast with before the pandemic, is an author of nonfiction, um, and, but he has a lot of advice about writing and i wanted to get your opinion on one piece of it um he says if you're not nervous about hitting the publish button then it's not ready do you would what would you say about that
1: (laughs) i i like that a lot um like i have uh, so i thought a lot of things first thing i thought about was my students who many many of whom are not nervous uh, about <laughs> about it, right? Uh, but then I also thought about how, with when I look at Lie now, I sort of wish I had not published it. Like I, I feel like it was not ready, uh and that I was too young and inexperienced to feel that anxiety that that your friend is talking about there. Because now I, it, you know, I would not have let a book like that in, into the world. um So maybe that also develops over time. You know, the 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 awareness of uh, where your own work is and when it's really ready for, for others to see. Yeah. How do you feel about
0: How do you feel about it? I 100% agree with it. I mean, I'm, I mean, you know, it's so, there, there's so much stuff that I write, which I know could destroy me. <laughs> and that's the stuff that I most want out there. So yeah, I agree with it. Yeah. Uh, I think that if you're not shaking as you hit the, the send button, maybe, maybe it's not quite arrived.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I do. I do like that way of thinking about it for sure.
0: Cool. Yeah. This was, this is, um, this is a podcast that's ma- mainly for, uh, business and entrepreneurs, but he, he tends to interview a lot of authors and so, um, Prior to the pandemic, we had Chuck Polanak on, um, and that whole thing was basically a two-hour MFA program in creative writing. Like all, all the questions that we ever had for Chuck, just got dropped. And uh, yeah, I, I, I would love to see you go on that when it's back in normal <laughs> business because I, I think you two would have a good time.
1: Yeah, that would be that would be really fun. Uh, you know, talking to you today is really fun and easy. I just feel like I have the easiest rapport with you. It's like uh no problem at all just to sort of chat and even before we logged in, you know, it was like um two minutes before I was supposed to get on Zoom and you know, I was talking I was talking with my wife, I was making you know, a slice I was warming up a slice of pizza. <laughs> she was like, Are you nervous about this? I was like, Oh no, I was like, it's like it's my friend Eric, it's all good. <laughs> so so yeah. you know, I yeah.
0: I feel like the stakes aren't high in the grand scheme of things. Um, It's mostly just like the, the most value I got out of that MFA program was talking to you for the most part. And I know that sounds like bullshit, but it's not. And I want to share that. I want to share that through the podcast because I wasn't 100% sure what to do with this thing. When I started it, I just knew that I was in a pandemic. I was bored. I had a lot. I wanted to get off my chest and then as it evolved, and as I started getting tired of hearing myself talk to myself, I'm like, I need guests. What what what, where, what kind of guests should I be getting? And I thought about, well, who who have I enjoyed talking with where I felt like those conversations would be useful to others? You are
1: one of them. Now I'm really I'm really happy to hear that uh, that our conversations uh, meant something to you. You know, and uh, like I was saying earlier, it was it was an unusual. Uh, You were an unusual student in that you weren't really like a student. You'd already been out in the world making things for a long time. So even though I was, you know, on the power side of the desk, it was more (laughs) just like having a conversation with another person trying to make art. Um, Yeah.
0: And that's to me what the best education program is because it lowers the stakes. You can actually have an exchange of information and, uh, and I, also, more importantly, in exchange, in terms of understanding, uh, I, I often read the feedback. Uh, well, not often, but I occasionally go back into all the various professors' feedback, right? So, you know, I would have one who's like, I didn't understand what I, this particular individual, we won't name drop him, uh, but he's like, I don't understand what Eric's trying to get from this program. I hope he finds it. Like, it was like a <laughs> tongue-in-cheek, like, goodbye. Uh But the truth is, is I was always in the unique position to see my competitors' resumes. And everybody had a technical training, but nobody had anything that indicated that they took their critical thinking skills seriously. Does anybody have writing background? Does anybody have reading background? And so I thought, well, if I'm going to go back to school, I'm not going to study film at all. That's what all my mentors in my undergrad try to get me to do. They're like, well, I mean, this is what you're doing. It's easier for you to graduate quickly if you just lean hard in on this. I'm like, but I'm not looking for quick. I'm looking to get one up on on my competitors. And so I studied writing in my undergrad. It was very difficult. Uh, But by the time I was done, I was ready for an MFA. And I didn't even plan on doing an MFA. And I'm like, all right, so I'll just go through two years of an MFA writing program. By the time I'm done... I expect to stand out. And I'm not shitting you. Two weeks after I got my diploma in the mail, because I didn't I didn't walk in graduation. I'm just like, do it digitally, whatever. I'm not going back to Bronxville. Um it's literally two weeks after I got an invitation to interview at this financial publishing company. They were based out of Baltimore and they're like, we need a video guy on our New York side. And we're interested because you have all this writing background in addition. I'm like, it worked! like and that best gig I ever had straight up because I thought outside the box about it yeah I couldn't relate to a lot of the students who just wanted to become editors and published authors and yeah I I wouldn't mind becoming a published author too but like in the end though I was well into that job when I saw that some of some of my peers were still looking for jobs and that's the difference and so it's kind of worth being a black sheep in that regard
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely, because all the people who are trying to go the, the standard route, um, you know, you can't, you, you can't fit uh, 10 gallons in a one-gallon jug, and uh, there's just too, too many of them looking to do the same thing. The system can't hold it. Like, think of how many MFA students want to teach MFA students, right? Like, yeah. that's their goal. But ju- you could do the calculus, right? There's there's one teacher in the room and 15 students. <laughs> so 14 of them, uh, that space is never going to open for. So, you know, it's not... A, it's
0: yeah, not you have a, actually a really, a really good rational. quote in your novel um, about learning how to write through an MFA program so you could teach how to... Uh, I, I forget what the exact quote was, but you, you have a really good quote about that, about how most... Yeah, it's, it's
1: Grace Kitchen talking about... Um, <laughs> Teaching writers to writers who wanted to teach writing to writers, and that the yeah. infinite regress is is not <laughs> lost on her.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah. and the funny part too is she, in the book, she teaches at an MFA program at the New School.
1: Right? Well, not the New School. Well, yes, but it's not the New School for Social Research that we know in Manhattan. Hers is called the uh, New School for Global Visions. Which is uh which is you know my way of creating a campus that would both uh, be imaginary and uh, make a sort of nod to all the liberal preoccupations with ur- urban academia that we would all know and recognize.
0: I don't know. I pictured I pictured the campus down on their new building on Fourteenth uh, Street with her. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I had some of that landscape in my head, and then I was also thinking about what buildings looked like at Sarah Lawrence because I know those buildings so well. And so in some cases, I think the look of Grace Kitchen's campus is like an amalgam of the new school in Sarah Lawrence. Like I would just pick, you know, whatever I thought I could describe well and and plug that into the campus.
0: Yeah, I I did something similar with this graphic novel I've been working on where like I needed – in this city that I'm designing, it's called the Great City. It's the greatest city in the world. There's no better city. Everything works perfectly. Of course, it doesn't. And there's a department of financial aid for artists who need art supplies. And it's basically the the main building of Sarah Lawrence, uh, Westlands. Is that, that's, yeah, Westlands. That's yep. been a couple of years. Uh, and behind it is the United Nations. <laughs> and so they're like one building. <laughs>
1: Yeah, exactly. All all my stuff is like that, you know, like uh, things, things that I'll put into books or stories that they might seem invented, but they're always just some kind of mashup (laughs) of places I know, (laughs) you know, um, even, even the characters in the book, you know, when I did um, a book event for Anthropica, when it came out with, with Rick Moody, I think you were there for that. Were you? I can't remember. Was that the Zoom thing? Yeah, me and Mike did a Zoom.
0: Pack. I didn't click into that. I was, um, I only just started my Zoom stuff like last week. I was really oh, resistant yeah. to it.
1: Anyway, he was asking me if uh, Grace Kitchen was the David Hollander character. <laughs> and And I was like, well, I said, I think they're kind of, believe it or not, all the David Hollander character. You know, like each one takes some aspect of my personality and just uses that mm-hmm. as their main attribute. Because as I was saying before, I live my life in compartments I'm like ten different yeah. people, so it was uh it was easy for me to separate those out and uh you know create full characters out of those attributes
0: yeah I mean I could see I could see you in every single character I mean obviously the writer character, but I also going back to how we started this conversation, I could totally see you in the scientist um uh, I, I don't know if you eat McDonald's but I could see you eating McDonald's if you really were having a bad day and I yeah, I could obviously you have the voice of Fexo as well so
1: <laughs> yeah I think I think Fexo might be the most David Hollander character <laughs> it's well, funny my uh, my 14 year old Percy uh, they, they read Anthropica and the, when they were talking about the scientist Stuart Dregs they were just like he's disgusting and they were like he's constantly just like covered in in like cheese dust (laughs) i was like like, oh yeah i guess uh, because i was talking talking with percy about how much i liked Stuart, and and, and they were just like he's gross (laughs) so i don't know um
0: trying to trying to think of all the things i wanted to bring up before i don't know if if you if you ought to have a hard out on this um yeah, I was
1: schedule. thinking. I was thinking probably two thirty would be a good okay, time for cool. me, just because so I'll I'm supposed to. That. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Um, you you very open about putting not just good reviews on your website, but ambiguously good reviews. Maybe I don't know. I don't believe that any review is a bad review. A review is a review, but maybe confused reviews. <laughs>
1: I, I love it. So uh, my favorite review of Anthropica was a really early one that um, some reviewer who reviews for Goodreads uh, put up a review that one star it said, um, this book was very weird to me, and I didn't understand any of it. And I wanted to put that on the book. Like I was arguing with my publishers, like this should be on the front cover <laughs> like, because uh you know, of course, the book's not for everyone. I feel really confident in my own writing. Like, no one's going to say anything to make me think ah, it, it's not good. Um, but it's weirdly, like, empowering to sort of wave these bad reviews <laughs> around. And, uh, you know, with LIE, I had one review, uh, like, on Amazon or something, where the person said... This is the worst book I ever read. I ripped it in half and threw it in the garbage the minute I was finished. I was like, oh, "That's gold! Like that's amazing to me." So, um, so yeah, I try to I try to advertise these things, and I've been in some ways disappointed that Anthropica has not gotten more bad reviews because um, I do immediately put them up on my website. I put them on social media. I embrace them.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I was inspired by that because you had it at the top. You have, it, you have that one you mentioned at the top. And um, last year, one of my movies got pulled from Amazon because they decided that their audience wasn't having, didn't see it as an enjoyable enough experience to be on Amazon. <laughs> and I was embarrassed by it. And then once I saw what you were doing, I'm like, you know what, I think that I'll put that their feedback in the review section of that particular page. And so... Uh, on my website, if you go into that specific film, the, the main review is Amazon's notification that it's being pulled, and I'm not allowed to resubmit it at all at any time in the future, and unless they specifically <laughs> invite me. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I really love that because, uh, you know, you have to remember that, like, uh, <laughs> well, I don't want to say this in a way that would seem too mean, but anyone who's creating something that's like a little bit challenging or a little bit outside the mainstream is going to experience a lot of hate for it. Right. There's just no way around that. And in some ways it's an indication that you're doing something kind of cool. And that's the, that's the part of the bad reviews that, that I embrace. It's like, Oh yeah, it's kind of cool that this person thought this book was super weird and didn't understand any of it because it suggests that even though that might be, a reaction among a huge portion of the mainstream. It exists in contrast to these really positive reactions by like uh, really smart writers who have said these really beautiful things about my book. And those two things can coexist and kind of hold each other in balance (laughs) in a way that seems just like the world to me. And I'm willing to embrace the fact that that's the way the world is, that those two things coexist and, you know who is my book written for? Well, it's not written for the person who says it's garbage and ripped it in half. It's written for the person who says you know it's brilliant and it moved them to tears, so you know that's I think how it is. Nothing is written or or created for everyone, right
0: yeah, and that's a great yeah. that's a great way to think about it. It's a healthy way to think about it and uh I think we should go on that because we're not gonna get higher,
1: yeah, that's Where, pretty yeah, good, yeah. I agree. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, let me. Well, if we're if we're gonna go, then I just want to say that uh, I, I'm really grateful that you wanted to do this with me, and and was looking forward to it. So yeah, so I, uh, thank. You. Well, I've been
0: wanting to reconnect with you for a while. Um, I think we have a lot in common. We see the world very similarly, and um, I'd love to do this again at some point, whether you have a book or not. Uh, me too. And uh, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it.
1: It has been my pleasure, Eric, and I'm glad we're doing this official outro <laughs> because there has been no editing done at all on this podcast. No,
0: no we weren't talking about any sensitive information whatsoever. Uh, we're not going to get sued because we never talked about it at all, and and, and- there's
1: nothing in any <laughs> of my various non-disclosure agreements that has been aired between you and I here today. Uh, no, so this is a, a non-disclosure
0: fun- agreement, like. We, we don't know anything
1: about those. <laughs> of course not. Of course not. So this is just a fluid conversation, and, uh, and I'm glad that we were able to, to have it. Okay. Fantastic. Thanks, Thanks again, man. I'll talk God. to you soon.
0: And so that's my discussion with David Hollander. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found some of it useful. I always found David's conversations really inspiring. Like, right now, I've just finished the conversation. We've logged off of Zoom. And I'm just inspired to write. Of course, I'm not going to go write. I'm going to go for a walk. And then I'm going to come back and do another podcast with another guest. Because uh, I tend to do them back to back. Or at least I try to do them back to back. But um, I remember in my MFA, whenever I had a, a one-on-one meeting with David, we had them bi weekly as a matter of regular process at Sarah Lawrence. And I was always just so inspired to write, inspired to create, inspired to do something meaningful after each conversation. And so i I really wanted to have a conversation publicly with him so that other people can understand what it is that I really appreciated uh, and and why it is that it was so inspiring to me. And maybe this podcast inspires you. Maybe, I, I don't know. I don't know. Let me know. I would love to know. If, this, if you found meaning in any of this. So feel free to reach out to me through my website, Uh If it wasn't meaningful to you at all, if you were disgusted by our conversation, if you thought I was the biggest dirtbag on the planet, oh, so let me know. I really want to know that. Um, um, anyway, thank you, everybody. <laughs> uh, and I'll see you on the next episode. Eric out. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you have a moment, please consider subscribing to the show wherever you listen. And if the app allows for it, please leave a rating and review. That way, the algorithm moves us up in recommendations. It's a great way for new listeners to find our show. Thanks, and I'll see you on the next episode.